Hello, welcome to How to Write a Play. I'm Alex, I work for the Old Fire Station Arts Centre in Oxford and we're currently running a playwriting course with Triple Olivier Award winner Mike Bartlett. Stay tuned for Mike's advice, writing tips, writing exercises, answers to questions from listeners and our thoughts on the theatre world in 2023. Today we're talking about arts funding. Mike, what are we covering in the course? We have a guest this week. We have the playwright and screenwriter Penelope Skinner with us right here, recording the podcast right now and doing the session with our writers this evening. So we're very lucky. Should we say welcome? Welcome, Penny. Welcome, Penny. Hello. Thanks for having me. You're our first ever guest. <laughs> it's very exciting. I've listened to the podcast and it's really good. So I'm enjoying it a lot. It's kind of you to say that. It's true. It's very useful. Good. So we're going to be asking Penny some questions and letting the group ask questions. And then we might even have a writing exercise to do, which I think would be exciting. Coming up at the Old Fire Station this week, we have Jen Brister for the last time. Again. Um, again. And she sold, sold out, out again. again. Honestly, um, you should book her just all just year. Just two weeks. Just all like year Like Stuart Lee's residency at Leicester Square. She should just do six months at the Old Fire Station. <laughs> I think she should, genuinely. Then on Thursday the 8th, we have Sheldrake on Shakespeare, which is a local Shakespeare expert who does a podcast. Shout out to James Sheldrake and his podcast. He's doing a live show of that at the Old Fire Station. On Friday the 9th of June, we have Spuds, which is Strange People Undertake a Drag Show, which is one of Oxford's drag nights. I said many years ago, I wanted us to become the home of Oxfordshire Drag, and we have, which is very exciting. We have Spuds and we have various other drag companies. And on the 10th and 11th of June, Oxford Operatics are doing On the Steps of the Palace, which is a variety night of different musical numbers about royalty which is very cool. And just a shout out for some job vacancies that we have at the moment. We are looking for a CEO and the closing date of that is on the 19th of June. So if you're interested, please do look. And we're also looking for a maternity cover for our exhibitions and workshops manager. So if you're interested in the visual arts, please do take a look at that. So this week we're talking about Nick Heitner's plan to save the arts, which he's written about in The Guardian. I've got some quotes here. He makes... The excellent point that Arts Council England doesn't have enough money, uh-huh. which it doesn't. Uh, it gets a tiny fraction of the UK's spending. And he thinks it's trying to do too much. So the new strategy, Let's Create, is about giving space for everyone to become creative. And his argument is that it's trying to do too much and it shouldn't have to nurture creativity and fund great art it should be doing just one of those and Mm. the model he uses is sport so you have sports england that do community tennis Mm -hmm. and then you have wimbledon and you know professional Mm -hmm. level medal winning tennis he believes that the best plan is for arts council england to separate into two organizations one to fund that community work and outreach and one to fund the big ticket shiny professional art that was a really good summary that was great. Thank you. It's a contentious subject. Is it? You, I can feel, even saying the summary in the room, I can feel <laughs> it's got a bit thick with tension because there's been reaction to this. Has there? What has the reaction been? Some very positive, some very negative. Uh-huh. So you have some people who think that this is exactly the right thing to be doing and some people who think that you shouldn't be separating the two out. Mm. And how do those people fall? Like, where do they, who falls along what lines? So Lynn Gardner's written an article in The Stage, essentially agreeing that there's not enough money, which uh-huh. I think, to be honest, from my point of view, is 
let's just make that the headline to begin with is like one of the points that nick heitner makes is you could double the the funding and it wouldn't make hardly a dent on anything Mm -hmm. in the overall budget and the amount they would get back would be vast so i think that really should be the headline whatever but lynn gardner i think um let me try and summarize her view which is that to separate a sort of professionalized higher art form Mm. from community i'm doing Mm. a lot of inverted commas here because Mm -hmm. these are all contentious words but community outreachy education work is quite an old-fashioned way of looking at Mm. the creation of art in the country is that fair to say that she thinks that's a bit old-fashioned and also it sort of seems to disrespect a lot of the community work that's going Mm. on that's run by professionals and the Mm -hmm. results feel professional or are professional in some ways so I think she would find that split unhelpful. Fair to say? Yes. Good. As do I, to Mm. be honest, to kind of, to pin my colours to the mast. I think he's created a bit of a false dichotomy there. And I think that he seems to feel like you get community and outreach over here and it's not professional. It's just people having a nice time. And over here, you've got your big starry professional shows. And actually, I don't think that's true. I think that it is way, I think there are big story professional shows and there are Amdram and non-professional shows, but I think there are even more shows that blur that line. And we had a show in last week where all the actors introduced themselves at the beginning and one of them said, I'm a theatre maker and a part-time box office assistant. Mm. And I was thinking, where does she fall for, for Nick Heitner? What does he think she is? Does he think she's in the professional art category? Mm. She's doing a professional show, mm-hmm. but... It's not her full-time job. Where does he think that all of those smaller companies who aren't in London, mm. the companies who are making amazing work, companies like the old fire station. So here we do work that is about process and involves loads of professional artists and we think is pretty darn good, but is not the kind of, it's not the bridge theatre, it's not the national theatre. Um, and also you can see some really high production value stuff that's very boring and doesn't say anything about the world. So I disagree with him. I'm mm-hmm. I'm with Lynn Gardner on this. I think he's made two boxes that shouldn't exist, really. I but think to play Devil's Advocate for fun. So there is, a, is, is there not a distinction between, he makes a distinction in his article, between someone who has dedicated their life to something, has trained in it for years, makes their living out of it, but also their focus in doing it is entirely really for the work that they produce and someone who is an amateur which comes from you know the word love and is they do it for their experience mostly and that's not their profession to play devil's advocate one could say those are two different things aren't they do you you know what i mean that they in every profession there is a distinction between people who would do it for a living and are trained and people who don't do it for a living and might do it for fun there are. There, that is a distinction. But amateur groups aren't the ones asking for Arts Council funding. Mm. So none of the amateur groups in Oxford. Yeah. Actually, there are a lot more, I probably shouldn't say this on a podcast, a lot more financially viable than uh, than other companies <laughs> yeah, because sure. they don't pay anyone anything, which means that they don't have the outgoing of salaries and fees and they get to keep all their ticket money. Then they put on shows with it. I think maybe Nick Heitner doesn't realise that there are professional companies who are doing amazing work to engage people who or maybe he hears oh we're doing amazing work to engage people who 
don't think they're artists. And he thinks, well, that's amateurs. And it's like, well, it's not. It's professional companies. It's professional artists working with people and doing some of that arts education and giving everyone the chance to be creative. Yeah. I think he, I don't know. I suspect he is fully aware. He's very, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to defend anything necessarily, but I think he does seem to me to be someone who's very aware of the theatre culture and would be fully aware of the companies that are in the middle of those two sectors. I think he's making a pledge to say that that blurring perhaps isn't helpful for the community side or the professional side. I think that's, I suspect that's the point he's making. I'm not necessarily sure I agree. I think there's a couple of further points than that, which is one, what he's doing, which I think is really good, is what the heads of these big institutions sort of should do, which is come out, write a big article that provokes a debate about mm. this stuff. Mm. And actually, we haven't had much of that in recent years. Whether or not you agree with him, I think it's really great that he's coming out, as you say, putting colours to the mast and saying, this is where I stand. Let's have a debate about this. And I think probably that's what would be his biggest achievement with this and he'd probably be very pleased that Lingan has written that article and that we're discussing it here mm -hmm. and that it's a discussion that lots of people are going to have and including people going he doesn't understand and like we we hate him I think he wants to provoke that debate and I think that's a really healthy debate and I think the other thing that I always think of with this discussion which I know we've talked about maybe on the podcast before is John McGrath's book A Good Night Out yes we which have. I think speaks to exactly this distinction is between the sort of narratives of, you know, that narrative that sort of says that theatre started with John Osborne in 1956 mm. and then progressed through this sort of group. That is what theatre is. That's, mm. And then John McGrath has a completely different view of what that story is and what actually theatre should come from and has come from and its working class roots and all of that. And I think that that feels to me a really interesting discussion to inform this. I think the thing is about access, really. Whether or not somebody is literally taking part in it, whether or not they are amateur or professional, I think the biggest question is, I think you want to get more people in, mm. in whatever their role, and the more people who are involved and, it, and loving it, whether it's watching really great art in the National Theatre or a community thing, then I think you can justify more subsidy because more of your taxpayers' money, more people are having those experiences, whatever they want, whether it's you know, a famous actor or whether it's doing a wonderful community project. And I think at the moment, the big challenge is it's still very off-putting to a lot of people. It's not part of people's everyday lives. So I think that's what we need to do. And the more we can do that, the more we can make a case for whatever the different arts funding situation is. The thing that I hate about this debate is that it it makes it us and them yes. when it shouldn't mm. like there should I be agree. more arts funding there should be more arts in schools there should be more arts funding and it should be very possible for the arts council not to have to choose between the big starry revival and Absolutely. the community project and we should be valuing it more and the government should give the arts more money i agree because they, they're both valid and they're and they're both great I think all three of these things, actually, because there are three things, isn't the professional, the sort of what you might say community-like professional-led community sort of work that blurs the boundary, and amateur theatre, and they're all brilliant. They're all quite different, but they're all completely legitimate and really great forms of theatre. So we should have funding to be able to do all of that in whatever way. And where would it fit if there was a community work that a big theatre was doing? Like, how does that fit into the picture if... Don't, don't they have 
programs at those big theatres that are doing community work? They have outreach programs, so I think that would probably be come under funding the, the so big So he's suggesting you whole. would separate those things even at the big shiny institutions, that the funding would be separate? I believe so. Mm. I believe that's what he's suggesting, but I don't know if he goes into that detail. Mm-hmm. No, but it's a good it's a good question because I think part of the problem at those institutions is or can be that the outreach department or participation department, whatever you call it, can get separate from the work on stage. Yeah. And actually, I think the challenge is to do the opposite in those buildings is to make them all part of one thing so that people can come and see the work on stage and it's connected to the work that they're doing and that they understand there's a sort of, do you know what I mean? It's porous and it works through, you know, and there's coherence to the whole building yeah. rather than having a producing theatre making work on stage on one hand and then it's almost separately like an education department which yeah. does something completely different. Um, so you'd have to find, if they were coming from f- separate funding pots, you might have to work harder to to do that but no he doesn't go into that detail does he good question do read it tell us your thoughts and listeners please do send in your thoughts tell us what you think info at oldfirestation.org.uk so what are we covering in the course this week well we have our guest and um (laughs) we're going to make full use of our guest (laughs) by asking our guest questions so we're going to do this in the group later on but i thought we could have a practice now in the podcast yes so i can ask you these questions and you and can, can answer them in an interview format. So I've got my first question, okay. which is, how did you become a playwright? So what was your journey from not being connected with theatre uh-huh. to where you are now? It isn't actually that dissimilar to yours, to what you described, because I think I also came at it from wanting to be involved. Well, I wanted to be an actor. And that's why I moved to London, was to try and become an actor. And that went pretty badly quite fast. But what it did introduce me to was the fact that people were writing new plays, which I don't think I knew really before I moved to London. Like there was Shakespeare. And then new plays were like Streetcar Named Desire or Noel Coward, Alan Bennett, Tom Stoppard. Like those were the new plays in my mind. But when I moved to London, I was like, oh, there's like new, new plays like being written now, about now. And I went to see one of those and it made me want to write a play. And that was, I guess, the beginning of having the idea. And then, like you were talking about on your journey, I think I joined lots of things and sort of wrote little things for different little schemes and competitions and went to stuff and do you remember dry write did you ever do dry write yes I did it yeah. I did it once run by Phoebe Phoebe Wallabridge and Vicky Jones yeah. it was like in a pub above like they'd just go to a different venue and everyone would just write a different thing and actors would go and they would act it out and there was like no purpose to it really was there I mean it was it was anonymous wasn't it I remember was it being it? yeah that you had your piece on but they didn't say who had written it ah, so it gave you space to, yeah. so certainly that's how I used it I wrote something that was very unlike anything I'd ever written. Okay. Well, it, it was really bad. I mean, it was, but it was very free. It was actually, experimental. No one, yeah. yeah no, it, no one knew whose was what. Uh, that's yeah. right. I've forgotten that. Yeah. So, yeah. like, just things like that. Yeah. And then I joined a writing group, and that's where I met Daniel Goldman, who directed my play on the fringe at the Old Red Lion. And then through that, I joined the Royal Court Young Writers Program, and that that sort of was. But I was too old to do the Young Writers Program by the time I did it. I think. 
I was officially too old, but they said I could do it anyway. Okay. So, you didn't have to lie about your age. No, no, they were fine. Okay, I, was, I, I don't know. I'd never applied because I just assumed mm. it wasn't for me. But then it sort of by having a play, by making, I guess, my own work and just doing it cheap. And what was that first play called? Can I say it on the podcast? Yes. Fucked. You can bleep that out. If we bleep no, it out, it would just be none the wiser. <laughs> it's a proper noun. I think we can use it. It's yeah. a play. It's the title of a play. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and had you done much writing before? Had you, had you written other bits growing up? Had you sort of thought of yourself as a yeah, writer? Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, I hadn't ever thought of myself as a writer, but I had written, like, always written things. Never written a play, but always written, like... Weirdly, I was thinking about this. Well, I wrote a Mills and Boone, but un- an unpublished Did Mills you? and Boone. It wasn't ever published. I just, <laughs> for like, things, something to do. Have you still got it? I don't know. Probably not. I think it's probably on an old laptop okay. that I no longer have. Thank God. Okay. <laughs> but I used to make up characters a lot, mm. writing names, which is like a fun bit of writing plays. So I think as soon as I had the idea to write a play, I enjoyed it a lot more than other kinds of writing. Great. And then you did the Royal Court. You did do that course. I did do. And then the first play, what happened after that? After the first play, I wrote a play at the Bush called Eigengrau. And then I had a play at the Royal Court upstairs called The Village Bike. That was sort of, I guess, the point of no return or something. <laughs> That's when I felt like a playwright. Oh, at the Village Bike? Probably. Really? It yeah. took that long? Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe that's when other people thought I was a playwright, but maybe I'd thought of myself as one before then. It's yeah. In, yeah, it's interesting. Um, someone said to me that when you have your first play on at a theatre professionally, you think I've launched, I've landed. And actually it takes a while, a number of plays for people to know what direction you're going in, to know what your voice is, what sort of writer mm. you are. And actually that's the point at which the phone might start ringing. Mm-hmm. But I certainly found my phone was not ringing at all until the third play I yeah think. I think the third play was is the one where you start going to meetings and yes. being offered telly jobs basically I've got some big questions okay because I I just want to say I think I, I, we won't sort of cover your career as a writer and the reason for that is that there's a great podcast that Simon Stevens did with you yeah. for the Royal Court which covers that in quite a lot of detail doesn't it so if you want to hear that, then you can go there. Okay. But this is about how to write a play. So I yes. thought I want to ask some big sort of, I think that way in is interesting, but I want to ask some big questions. So the first big question is why do you write plays? That is a big question. Because I love plays, because I love watching plays, and I feel like the theatre is the best for me art form that exists in terms of like, reflecting the world and humanity and feelings and like the communal experience with the audience and like I guess I love going to watch plays and I really love writing them like more than like that is still the best feeling for me when it's going well and I do feel like that connection between your play and the audience is probably the reason why yeah and do you think of the audience when you're writing how present are they in your thoughts they are like both present and not present I feel like they are I want them to enjoy the experience and 
be entertained. It's a great answer. And I have another question spinning okay. off that answer. When you write a play, do you picture it in the place the play <laughs> is taking place or do you picture it in a theatre? Yeah. Well, I think I picture it in the place that it's taking place, which is always, I then always regret when it comes to the, like, staging. What do you? I think I think of it taking place in a sort of, I think I do picture the stage. Yeah. But Which has meant writing for television is a, is a really big leap for me because you have to picture screen work in reality, don't uh-huh, you? Uh-huh. Or at least the, what you're going to see on the television. Mm. So that feels like quite a different thing for me. But I only realised that we were, I was doing a, a workshop with some people and we had a group of writers and we realised we were all different. Mm. Some of them pictured it in reality and some pictured it in the theatre. Mm. And I don't know what, yet what that means about the writing, but I thought it's really, because it's one of those distinctions you wouldn't think of. Yeah, and I think you, but you have to picture it like you have to, or I feel like I do make a decision about like kind of, even though it's in reality, it yeah. is still somehow within a theatre. So I never go beyond what is possible, but then sometimes I do just go, oh, well, there'll just be this annoying thing that you shouldn't do, like a bit on a hill or something. Yeah. And that's and a challenge that, for the director. Then I think that's designer. a challenge for the exactly. director. They yeah. can worry about that. <laughs> yeah, good. And it's then, important to do those yeah, things, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Our writers are starting their plays at the moment. Mm-hmm. Great. So a relevant question is, do you have a sense of where you find or start or begin your plays? Where's your starting point? I think it is always different sometimes it's an image sometimes it's a character sometimes it's like the whole story sometimes it is an idea usually this is both maybe a motivating thing to say and an annoying thing to say but I do usually I can often end up writing the whole thing again because sometimes I find it by writing it once and then have to start again and when you write it again, yeah. and I've heard of writers doing this, do you have the old version next to you when you're typing the new one, or do you just you just throw it away? Sometimes there'll again? be like a bit that stays. Right, but you're not copying it. You no. might just remember it. I might, or it might just be like, oh, that was just wrong, yeah. but there was something in it. It just needed, I needed to find it. And when you do I, that having got to the end of that first yeah. version, wow. It's really bad. I, I wish that I, and it hasn't happened with every play, but it has happened with like at least three plays, which I I should have known. They were really hard work. I should have known and started again sooner, but I had to get to the end first. And is it, so. they were hard work, and is it because something wasn't right in the in the sort of core or the DNA or the foundations that you needed to fix or you just came at it in the wrong way or I think like I think a play is sort of like a almost well is it I don't know which analogy it is but it's like either dominoes or a puzzle or like a dominoes puzzle so that you can start off wrong and you don't know until you get to like yeah press that domino to tip them and you go it's just all wrong and they're not falling and like this is the other thing, right? Is like what's the difference between a dramatic scene and a conversation? Because yep. sometimes I can, f- I'm like writing, and it's just a conversation. You're like nothing is happening. Why? And you know, like you can, f- you can work out why. Yeah. 
and we talked about what when it's going not well and it's yes. hard and you're struggling and you know yes. nothing's happening. Yes. What's the feeling? Say you start again, yeah. and this time it goes well. Yes. What does that feel like? That's the best feeling. Do you know what you're writing is good or you know it's better than last time? I think you just know that things are happening yeah. and like the story yeah. is telling itself and you're yeah. like in it and you've forgotten and like a whole day has gone by and somehow the events are unfolding as they and things are surprising you like that you didn't know were going to happen, yeah. but they're just happening. And that's the magic place. And have you written something good that has been <laughs> hard to write and not pleasurable? Have I written something good that has been hard to write? Not, but I can't answer that question. No, I mean like that you a play that you're happy with in in the final analysis. Yes. Or is everything in the end that you write that you're happy with come from that good writing experience? Is that a sign for you that things are going well? I don't know. Okay. Good I just answer. know it's different. It's always different. Different. And it being hard doesn't necessarily isn't always bad. It's just sometimes it's really hard. But if you keep going, you might get to the end and have to start again. But you will, if the story is one that has to be told, it will be told. It will come out somehow in the end because it won't be let go. That's brilliant. That's really brilliant. I think, yeah, yeah, I think that's that's right. And there's, it's linked to a, we always talk about Tony Kushner every week. We're not sure why, but okay. it does happen. And that's right, isn't it? Yeah. He always, He's our he always appears. We should get a, a, a soft toy Tony Kushner. To- <laughs> Uh, what was I going to say about I've completely forgotten that no he says that actually any idea could be made to work with enough work Mm. it might take like 30 years Mm -hmm. and so it's just about knowing uh, have you found the right idea and 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 knowing how much sort of how much work you're prepared to put into it in a way Mm -hmm. which is a sort of related thought possibly and when you're writing we've talked quite a lot about we talked on the podcast about political plays. Mm-hmm. We talked about... That was a great conversation. I found that really... Mm, okay, well... Don't ask me that question, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I think what sort of is related to that is is when you're writing, how conscious are you of writing about uh, a subject, like a theme? Like uh-huh. a dramaturg might say to you, well, what are you trying to say with this play? Or what's this play about? And or conversely, are you more thinking about character and psychology and less about the meaning or the sort of intellectual ideas of the play Mm. do you have a sense of when you're in the moment of writing how much you're aware of that I think it there are like two maybe two types of play that I have written and mostly I enjoy writing the ones where there is not that awareness I did write a play called Angry Alan which was like my way in was to kind of explore the men's rights movement so there was a kind of like overt political uh, subject. It involved a lot of hours on YouTube, which wasn't that enjoyable. And in that, I guess I was aware that there was a theme and that people would be aware of that theme. But other than that, don't think so. No, it's usually the story yeah. is the thing. And then other people, I guess, read into that what the politics are. And I suppose connected with that is what you hope your plays will, do you have a sense of what you hope your plays will do to, with, for an audience, what the effect of them will be? I guess that for me, when I go to see a play, I love to disappear into the world, like to be immersed in that world. Like that's the most magical thing for me about the theatre is a transportation temporary 
transportation. And so that's a big part of what I would like to create is like a, an immersion in this story and that that would reflect something for people who might find truth in it. And for me, like if I feel that truth reflected in a play, that's the most moving. I guess it's that opportunity for stories to change you, to change, yeah, your heart or something. But I don't know if you can be in control of that as you're writing yeah. it, you know. You just try to express some truth through story. Brilliant. Um, final question for me. Some of our writers on the course and hopefully listeners will also be interested in screenwriting. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions that I'm asked a lot, and it feels like a work in progress in my mind, is the difference between screenwriting and playwriting. Mm. And I wondered, as someone who's been very successful at both, whether you had any reflections on that. Do you mean the practical reality of the job of screenwriting or like the art of writing a screenplay versus writing a play? I think more the art. Okay. Like if you were either a playwright thinking about writing a screenplay, what's the difference? Uh-huh. Or if you were a writer not sure which one to do, mm. which one might mm. play to your strengths or which mm-hmm. one should you go into. Yeah, I think I mean that, like the yeah. art, what's the, di- what's the different things you need to think about in the two different forms? Or are they different? Maybe they're not different. Maybe you write them. I did know a playwright who said they just write everything exactly the same. Really? Yeah, there's no difference. But I think there is a difference because in a way, it's about, like how you tell the story of a play is involves, for me, a lot more mental effort, a lot more puzzling because if you want to reveal an event on stage you have to find a way for those characters to expositionally reveal that event whereas in a screenplay you can just do a flashback or something I mean you might get told to cut that (laughs) later but in the writing of it you I don't know because you see I would say writing a play is for me harder but maybe I'm not a very good screenwriter. I don't know. Like, I guess you have to think visually more maybe with a screenplay. Like that's something to think about. And maybe like, which one do you love more? Probably. I think sometimes playwrights writing screenplays have the same anxiety, which is I'm terrible at this. Uh And I think it's because, or one of the reasons might be, I certainly, I find it's because when you write a play, it's like it is an invitation to collaboration in mm-hmm. that you are expecting, you know you're going to have, if it goes on, four weeks in the rehearsal room, mm-hmm. a director, actors. You're going to be there at the same time. Some previews. Some previews. And you're all going to be sort of interrogating this and adding to it and building it together. Whereas a screenplay, because of the nature of the way television particularly is made, yeah. it's the final document. And so it has to have everything in it. And... And therefore, that makes that document technically much more complicated. Like if you want to show someone getting out of a car, you can just write the get out of a car. But actually, someone's going to have to choose what shots they need to get out of the Mm -hmm, car and what's mm -hmm. the feel of those shots. So you end up getting into very technical things in your script. Mm. And so this 56-page document is not just like a play, like an artistic start to something. It's a technical document where every page carries so much detail in it it's no surprise that you feel a bit overwhelmed by all the requirements of that. Mm. So it's almost like 
it's not just that the art form is different. It's like the document is a different tool, isn't it? I think that's true. And increasingly, like in the theatre, directors like it more the less there is. Right, yeah. Like, if okay. you write loads of stage directions in a play, the director will be like, oh, I don't read those anymore. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's really true. Whereas in a screenplay, you're often encouraged to write exactly what happened. Well, if you forgot to write a character, time. they just wouldn't be in the scene, no. right? Yeah. And then you... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mike, have you got an exercise for us this week? In the group, we are starting the plays. And so Penny and I have talked about starting points and how you get into a play and how you find it. And we did a bit of this last week. And this is actually a bit like a creative writing exercise in inverted commas. And we haven't done many of those. We've done graphs and technical exercises. And it's not really felt like a creative writing group at all. But this is one of those. And actually, it's one that I found useful. To credit him, it was Steve Waters, the playwright, who did this exercise with me when we did the Old Vic New Voices 24-hour plays about, how long? 20 years ago? And it was good, and it really it made me write in a different way, which is basically to think of today and think of a moment today that was unusual in some form. Something unusual happened, something you saw that was out of the ordinary or something you did, something that was not every day and that got your attention. It could even be something you thought of, I think. Why did it get your attention? Try and work out why. What was it about that thing that you found interesting that your brain clicked into a different moment and surprised you? And if that's the case, then what's the story there? There's probably a story connected with that unusual moment. If there's a story there, who's the main character? Who's the protagonist of that story? And then you get into questions of what does that character want? What's stopping them getting it? What do they need? Then let them speak, write a monologue. And then, and this is a fun exercise, is for them to write a monologue of what they think of you as a writer. And through that, I found a bit like we were just talking about, actually, that rather than it's a good way of writing a play or starting a play that's not in any way thematic or political, but is more just about you're writing quite instinctively. But there must be something in that day that got your attention. And if it gets your attention, then maybe it would get an audience's. And what we might do is in the group is share some other ways in and maybe we'll write some of those down and talk about them next week. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Thank you, Penny. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for coming. Remember, everyone, you can send in your questions and thoughts on the theatre world to info at oldfirestation.org.uk. And next week we're taking a break for the half term, so we will be back one week later than usual. See you later. How to Write a Play is hosted by Mike Bartlett and Alex Pope. Editing and music is by Hannah Gallardo Parsons and it's produced by the Old Fire Station, Oxford. Please support us by giving five-star ratings and reviews wherever you get your podcasts to help us get seen by more theatre makers. This show receives no exterior funding. If you'd like to support the work of the Old Fire Station, please donate at oldfirestation.org.uk.